Praise God. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, you may have noticed uh, worship had a little more bass to it today. We lost some of our altos and our sopranos. We have uh, close to 120 women that are away on a women's retreat. And uh, for those of you ladies who couldn't get there this year, you got to get there next year. They're having a tremendous time. Uh, coming back later today, uh, to all the dads that are holding down the fort, keep going. A couple more hours. Remember when my, uh, my kids were little and my wife would go away, people would always say to me, oh, you're babysitting this weekend. And it would drive me nuts. I'm like, I'm not babysitting. They're my kids, right? You don't babysit your own kids. You, you. Anyway, a pet peeve there. Um, but we're thankful for what the Lord is doing there and uh, thankful just for his provision in our lives. I believe God has a word for us as well this morning. Amen? You came through the doors. Hopefully you got a note sheet. Encourage you to pull that out. Encourage you when you come to church to bring your Bibles, bring a pen, and take some notes. Um, you know, uh, we, this is not a community group week, so there's no fill in the blank, but I believe uh, if you write some things down, it'll be a blessing um, to your life. Amen? Maybe we get a little more uh, light in the house just so people can take notes. Uh, if you don't want to write it down, you can do it on your phone. I'm trusting that you're taking notes. And uh, Yeah, anyway. <laughs> in in August of the year of 1513, uh, a monk was teaching his seminary students uh, about the book of Psalms. And as he taught on the peace that the psalmist was, was talking about, he realized his life was anything but peaceful. His life not only lacked peace, but it, it lacked an understanding of God's grace. And he read in Psalm 31.1, in, in which David declares to God, In your righteousness, deliver me. But as he read those words, he was confused on how God's righteousness could deliver. He thought surely God's righteousness would only condemn him to hell. But then he came across a a verse in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in which Paul writes these words. For in it, referring to the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The monk's name was Martin Luther, and he went on to say this about that one verse in Romans. He said, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Because of this verse, Martin Luther was born again, and what we know as the Reformation began that day in his heart. Hundreds of years later, in May of 1738, a failed minister and missionary uh, was in a Bible study where someone read aloud from Luther's commentary that he wrote on the book of Romans. And here's what he said about that moment. He said, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. That minister was a man by the name of John Wesley, and that night he was truly saved, and he went on to lead the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. This week we are are jumping into the book of Romans, and it's, it's a book that I've desired to, to preach on for some time, but to be honest with you, I, I've never felt up to the task, and the truth is I still don't feel up to the task, but here's what I know today. I trust the Word of God to speak, amen? I trust the Word of God to speak. 
John Calvin said this of the book of Romans. He said, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. And here's what I want to say as we uh, dig into this together today, that our mission as a church is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And, and we believe that happens as you encounter the presence of God in worship, yes, but even more so as you encounter God through his word. And so that's why as a church we're committed to teaching from the word of God. We're committed to doctrine because we want you to experience the life change that comes from knowing God's word and actually applying it to your life. Now, in the book of Romans, you're going to find it is it's full of life-changing truth. But in order to receive that truth, you're going to have to approach this book with some effort and some determination. Uh, this past week, I was putting together uh, this little greenhouse for my wife, and the instructions, uh, I'm reading them, they're very hard to understand. You know, there are technical writers, that that's all they do is they write instructions. This technical writer wasn't very good, and so I'm trying to put this thing together and, and figure it out, and I'm like, how come they didn't hire the Ikea guys? You know, they're the best technical writers. Give me an Allen wrench and Ikea instructions. We're good, right? Uh, but I'm trying to, to put it together, and it took some effort, uh, but I didn't stop because I knew my wife wouldn't let me stop, and I pressed on, and I got it done, and it's still standing today. It was worth it, okay? Uh, there's going to be times in this journey through Romans where you're going to have to press in some and do the hard work. Not because, uh, not because Paul is a bad writer, but because he's talking about deeper things than just putting together a greenhouse, okay? We're going to get a little deep here. And so you're going to have to do some hard work to really understand what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. I'm going to try to do the heavy lifting, but I need a commitment from you to, to be here and to be reading. Are you with me? Like five of you. Are you with me? Good, good. Because I can tell you this, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And so we're going to take our time in this book. We're going to go line by line. We're going to go verse by verse. I trust you did your homework this week and read Romans chapter 1. If not, there's grace extended because we're going to be here in the, the first chapter of Romans for a few weeks. And before we read in Romans chapter 1, let me give you some context of this, this phenomenal letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. If we look at the overall structure of the New Testament, we know that it begins with the four Gospels, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, talk to me this morning, right? The Gospels. It's really a, a fourfold testimony of the life of Jesus. Now, uh, after that, the second section of the New Testament is the historical section, okay? Which tells us about the birth of the early church, the spread of the Gospel. That's in the book of Acts. I'm like, please, we were there for a year, right? And then following the historical section, we get into uh, the book of Romans, and from there until the book of Revelation, we get the letters, also called epistles, which are written by men of God to different churches and to leaders because of dis different situations that they're going through. And so Romans is the, the first book of this section of letters, and it's written by the Apostle Paul. Now, it's almost universally agreed that Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth as he was on his third missionary journey. Remember, we followed his journey through Corinth, right? And, and, and when he wrote the book of Romans, he had been a preacher for uh, about 20 years, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has three months in Corinth without really any pressing duties, and as he always desired to go to Rome, but he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit's warning him that danger awaits him in Jerusalem. And I don't know if Paul thought, well, maybe danger in Jerusalem, maybe I won't ever make it to Rome. Let me write a letter to them so that they can understand the gospel that I preach, right, even if I never visit them. 
And so because of this, Romans is, is different than the other letters that Paul wrote to other churches. Other New Testament letters, they focus more on the church, they focus more on, on the challenges and the problems. The letter of Romans focuses more on the great redemptive plan of God. And, and Romans has been called the manifesto of the Christian life. Now, when you want to understand the major theme of any book of the Bible, one of the ways that you can do that is for looking, by looking at words that are repeated in that book. And, and there's some repeated words in Romans that you need to know. Write these down. The first one is the word law. The word law, it appears 78 times. And it doesn't just refer to the law of Moses. Sometimes it's used like a principle. Like we talk about the law of gravity. It's a principle that we understand, right? Now, Paul will say, for the law of Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. He's not speaking of the law of Moses. He's speaking of the principle of life and the principle of faith versus the principle of death. But 78 times the word law is used in the book of Romans. The next word you need to see is the word righteousness. Righteousness, it appears 66 times. And finally, the word faith, it appears 62 times. So by just looking at those three key words alone, law, righteousness, and faith, you get a pretty good idea about the theme of Romans. The theme of the book of Romans, put those words together. Romans shows us how we are made righteous by, before God by faith and not by the law. This is why Romans is called by Luther. He called it the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. We are made right before God. We are giving a righteousness by our faith. Now, the great summary statement of the entire book is found right in chapter 1, and it's verses 16 and 17. Paul writes these words. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the pure gospel, and, and it's why a, a study of the book of Romans can be found in every major revival in church history. Just think about that for a moment. Every major revival in church history, you'll find the leaders of the church transformed, touched by, influenced by their study of this book. And here's my prayer. As we study this letter together as a church, that we'll be transformed, that we'll be touched by the word of God, and that we'll be changed. Man, that's a good place for an amen right there. It will be changed, Amen. Because we need to be changed. We need to be transformed. I know I do, right? Now, if you remember from our time in Acts that, that Jesus told his disciples, he told them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. As far as Jerusalem was concerned, Rome was pretty uttermost. Now, what's interesting about that is at that time when Christ spoke those words, Paul the apostle was not yet a saved man. And yet he would be the one that would take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 9, we saw how God got a hold of Paul, right? And he radically changed his life. Remember, Paul was born Saul of Tarsus, okay? Tarsus was a, a, a large city with three huge universities. And so he was born a citizen of Rome. He was likely educated in one of those universities. He was also educated by the great rabbi Gamaliel, who was the son of one of the greatest rabbis, Hillel. And it's likely that Paul was a leader in one of the synagogues in Tarsus when he heard about this movement known as the Way. Now, like many Jews in his time, when he heard about the teachings of Jesus, he saw them as a perversion of Judaism. And so 
He set out to eliminate those teachings. He went to Jerusalem, he went to Judea to hunt down these Christians. And from Jerusalem, he actually received permission to go to Damascus to persecute the Christians in that town of about 150,000 people. But on his way to, to round up what he considered like renegade Jews, again, he believes they're perverting the gospel. After six days, he's almost to the city when the light shines from heaven and he hears the voice of Jesus, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul asked the question, who are you, Lord, right? Now, I, for one, believe that at this point, the Holy Spirit was already convicting Saul's heart. Because while in his head, he knew that these Christians were not in line with the Jewish leadership, I'm sure in his heart, he could not reconcile how they would always respond with such grace, right? Even when they were persecuted, it was always grace, But when the voice came from that light and he heard, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, at that moment his world was completely turned upside down. He had certainly heard all the arguments from Scripture about Jesus being the Messiah, but now he would start proclaiming those same arguments that he had resisted. And because he knew the Old Testament so well, he came up with all of his own arguments as well, right? In, in Paul's life, there was this drastic change. There was this immediate change. And so getting to our text, Paul introduces himself. Are you there? Romans 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, in our Western culture, when we write a letter, we usually put our name at the end of the letter, right? We put the recipient's name, dear so-and-so, right? So if this were a Western letter, we would say, dear Romans, right? And then we'd have 16 chapters, and then finally it would be Paul, the apostle, servant of Jesus Christ, right? But can you imagine reading that on a scroll? Like you're going through the scroll, okay? We usually flip over. I do this. If I get a letter, who, I want to know who wrote it to me before I read it. Anyone with me, right? I read, okay, okay, that's who it's from, right? But can you imagine going through a scroll all the way to the end and be like, man, this is really good. I wonder who wrote this, right? And you get to the end, oh, Paul wrote it, right? And so I think it's better that they begin the letter by saying, hi, this is me. I'm writing the letter, right? You don't have to go to the end to find out who wrote it, right? The author always names himself or herself first in ancient literature. And so Paul introduces himself, and right away, here's what he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word there is the word doulos, and it it really means a slave, more accurately. You see, Paul's favorite way of referring to Jesus is Lord. The Greek word means master, and Paul understood that he is a slave of his master, Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. He begins the letter to the Philippian church in the same way. Now, this understanding that, that he's a slave or he's a servant of his master is connected, I believe, to his call to apostleship. He says, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He writes that he was set apart for the gospel. He's a representative of Jesus primarily to the Gentiles. Now, in some ways, Paul's calling as an apostle is unique, right? I mean, he would end up writing a lot of the New Testament, right? And, And though he never met Jesus during his earthly ministry, Jesus appeared to him. He also met with the apostles who walk with Jesus. He learned from them. He had many direct revelations from Jesus himself. And so there are 12 apostles that were to convey Christ's message to the world, and Paul declares this in 1 Corinthians 5, 8. He says, I'm like one who was untimely born, meaning I arrived, arrived late to the party, uh, but, I, but I did see the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, when we read about men like Paul in Scripture, we can tend to think of them as like Christian superheroes, right? You almost picture them with a cape on. They're like these superhero guys, right? 
And while we long to be like them, we know we will never write anything with the authority of, of Scripture, right? But like Paul, I want to say this, you and I can be a slave of Jesus Christ. Our lives can be and our lives should be set apart for his use. You see, before coming to Christ, Paul was a Pharisee. Remember that? And that word comes from the Aramaic, which means to set apart. The Pharisees were the ultra-religious. They wore special robes and didn't want to be contaminated by others. They thought they were set apart to obey the law in a special way. But in most cases, they were just set apart to arrogance and pride. But now Paul realizes he's set apart for something far more important. He set apart for the gospel. You see, as a Pharisee, he knew what he was set apart from, but now he knows what he's set apart for. And can I tell you, there is a difference. We too, you and I, are set apart for the gospel. We are called to be light in a dark world. While we're not called to be an apostle in the same sense that Paul was, again, we're not going to write the New Testament, okay? It's already written, but we are all called to be God's children by faith. We, we are called to, to set apart to offer light and hope to those who live in sin and darkness. Understand that man is so selfish and so sin sick that he doesn't even realize it. And when push comes to shove, in our world it's every man for himself, right? And so all that sin, all those addictions, we, we know they only lead to destruction. Sin leads to enslavement, but the gospel is good news because it offers a solution to the enslavement of selfishness and sin. The gospel brings freedom from guilt. It brings freedom from shame. It leads to a, a life of meaning by becoming a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ, just as Paul was. Now, if you look at verse 1 and you applied it to your life today, could you say with sincerity that you're a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, and you're set apart for the gospel? Let's put your name in there and let's say it together. Daniel, no, say your name. You're not Daniel. Say your name. Daniel, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. But it raises an important question, doesn't it? And it's, it's one you may need to wrestle with a little bit this morning, and that's okay, but it's this question, are you a slave to Jesus or are you a slave to your own passions? You see, some people are, are not servants of Christ. They simply want Christ to serve them and serve their passions and their desires. But according to Galatians 5.24, it's, it's one or the other. Paul writes these words and he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Have crucified the flesh. They've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're here today and you've heard God's call on your life, if the burden of guilt has been lifted, I want to tell you today it's been lifted for a reason. You haven't just been set apart from something, you've been set apart for something. See, too many believers are bored to death in their faith because they only think about what they've been set apart from. Oh, I got to stop doing that. I got to stop doing that. I used to do this, but now I don't do that anymore, right? They, they only they spend their Christianity thinking about, here's all the things I had to leave behind, but they don't think about what they're set apart for, what they're called to do now, and what they have the privilege of doing. Understand, when you take a hold of faith, you now have something that others desperately need. If you ask Paul who he was, man, he knew his identity. He'd say, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. If I asked you, who are you? Would you have the same answer today? See, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Look at verse 2. Here's what he says about that gospel. 
He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This was that that great paradigm shift that transformed Paul's life. He was persecuting believers because he did not see how Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures, but when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, his interpretation of Scriptures took on a whole new light. And, And so this gospel that he preaches, it's not something new. It's, it's not the, the clever invention of man. Paul didn't come up with something new, but rather he taught something very old in the plan of God. He proclaimed the good news of God. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Understand, Jesus is the center of Paul's gospel teaching. Even today, Christianity is not primarily a, a teaching or a, a moral system. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. The prophet Nathan had told King David that God would build him a house and that his, his heir would reign forever. That's why the Jews began to refer to the coming Messiah as the son of David. And so Jesus is born and Jesus' DNA is from the line of David, but it was the Holy Spirit that gave him life in Mary's womb. And, and so verse 3, look at that, it, it really stresses Jesus' humanity. But verse 4 focuses on his divine nature and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Does that verse sound familiar? We were there last week, right? Now, when we talk about Christology, when we talk about the nature of Christ, it's important to realize that Jesus has both a human origin. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, but he also has an eternal existence. He was declared to be the Son of God. And so the evidence of Jesus' humanity is his human birth, right? He, he grew up as a child. He was born a human birth. The evidence of his deity is what we focused on last week. It's his resurrection from the dead. You see, because Jesus was human, he could die. He could go to the cross and he could pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. But because he was divine, he could not stay dead. Amen? He defeated death. He defeated the grave, not only for himself, but for all who believe in him by faith. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, don't miss this, because it means something that the Apostle Paul called Jesus Lord. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word is used to to render the divine name, the, the name Yahweh. And and Christians who use that as their Bible would be familiar with this term meaning deity. And then he writes this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul's writing to the believers in Rome, but he's saying, I'm a part of you guys. We, right? We. And this is for us today as well, as believers. Through Jesus, we have received grace. See, before Jesus, you and I had no hope of anything except for judgment. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It's because of grace. It's not because of anything that we've done. It was only grace that caused God to stoop down. It is his unmerited favor toward us. We have received grace, amen? And, and it's, it's, a, it's a grace that reaches down. It's a grace that pulls us out of the mire of sin that would destroy us and condemn us to hell. We've received a grace that has made us children of God, a, a grace that's moved our hearts to, to reach out towards his hand, and it is that same grace that will keep us until we're home. 
You see, Paul's gospel isn't just theory. It's not just philosophy. It's not even just, okay, great theology. It is. But it's actually life-changing good news. The gospel gave Paul grace and apostleship. And, and one of the reasons those two gifts were given was this, was to produce obedience to the faith. You see, without grace, he could not have been an apostle. Without grace, you and I can't be apostles. We can't be sent out, right, without the grace of God. But through the Son, you've received grace and apostleship. And that word apostle, it sounds like a big word, right? It's somebody's high status if they're an apostle. No, it simply means this, sent one. Each of us, we are called to be Christ's messengers by the way that we live our lives and by the things that we actually do. Grace and apostleship are ours today. In order to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Paul uses that that term obedience of faith as a way of saying salvation. But here's the thing. Obedience is not what saves us. And yet if we are saved then Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our master and so we are serving him, amen? That, that means we're obedient to the faith. True faith results in obedience to God. We're saved to obey Jesus as Lord. And, and here's the reality. The more we live under his lordship, the more we submit to him, the more we find out this is actually the best way to live. Now, some might ask, can, can you be saved and not obey? I would say yes, because no Christian has obeyed completely and fully from the time of their salvation until the point of death, right? Only Jesus lived a a sinless, perfect life. And and so this idea of obedience of faith, it's really an increasing in Christ-likeness, right? We're being changed, we're being shaped to look more and more like him. And many of you would say, I'm not where I want to be, right? But I thank God I'm not where I used to be. Christ is changing me. He's he's shaping me, right? He's making me obedient to the faith. And so we're we're called to be Christ's messengers by the way that we live our lives. We're saved to obey Jesus as Lord. Now, here's here's the, the thing. Christians can disobey God, but here's what you'll find. You'll be miserable doing it because you'll be grieving the Holy Spirit that lives in you, right? And so that's a good thing. Conviction is a good thing because it causes us to turn to Christ. At the same time, James 1.22 tells us that there are those who deceive themselves. There are those who live in habitual disobedience to God who've never known salvation. Oh, they may do religious things. They may go to church from time to time. They may go through the motions, but they've never known obedience of faith. You see, simply calling Jesus Lord is worthless unless you've surrendered to him as a Lord and you're now living a life that's directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Again, it's not just the lost who are called to obedience to the faith. It's all who belong to Jesus. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, remember, when Paul wrote this letter, he'd never been to Rome. He didn't found the church in Rome. It seems like the, the church in Rome began somewhat spontaneously as Christians came to that great city, they settled there. Remember Acts chapter 2 describes how on the day of Pentecost there were those that were there from Rome. There were Jews that were present that day. And so they get saved, they are baptized, they return home, and there's this Christian community in Rome. And it's likely that Christians continually migrated to Rome from all different parts of that region. And and so it shouldn't surprise us that a, a church started there spontaneously without being planted by the Apostle Paul. 
But even so, through his travels, Paul knew many of the Christians that are now in Rome by name. He's going to mention them at the end of his letter. But even if Paul only knew many of the Christians in Rome by acquaintance, here's what he knew. He knew two things about them, and there are two things that are true of every Christian. He knew this, that they were loved by God and that they were called saints. Beloved of God and saints. Now, I know the ESV says called to be saints, right? But if you look for those words to be in the Greek, they're not there. You won't find them because those words were actually added by translators to try to make sense of the sentence. But in reality, I don't think they're needed. You can just say called saints. They were not called because they were saints, yet they became saints because of their calling. You and I were not called because we were saints. Man, some of you were far from that, right? But we've become saints because of our calling. He says, to you saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two words form Paul's typical greeting. You'll see them again and again throughout the New Testament. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. It's a combination of Greek and Hebrew ideas. He's combining the the Greek idea or the Greek greeting of grace with the Jewish greeting of peace. Grace is, as we said, it's the unmerited favor of God. And it only comes to us from God in Jesus. The peace is the Hebrew word. What is it? Shalom. Come on, you got to know that. We live in Rockland County. You got to know shalom, right? Shalom, right? And you hear that word shalom, it, it, it's more than just peace. It really is. It, it's really the presence of every good thing in life, from health to prosperity to relationships. And these two things, grace and peace, can I just say this morning? They're better than anything that this world can offer us. Grace and peace, they're really priceless. What would you give to have your life filled with grace and peace? Some of you here today, you say, Pastor, I'd do anything (laughs) to have grace and peace in my life today. Well, if that's you, here's the good news. Those things are yours in Christ Jesus. Those things are yours in Christ Jesus. You may say, well, if they're mine, why am I not sensing that today? Why don't I I have grace or peace? I don't don't feel like, like they're mine today. Well, here's the reality. In order to live into those things, there's only one position that Christ can hold in your life. It's the position of Lord, doulos, master. And so it brings me back to a question I asked earlier. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? I mean, really, Honestly, is he the Lord of your life? Are you a slave to Jesus Christ or are you a slave to your own passions and your own desires? Here's what I find. Many people won't surrender their lives to Jesus because they think, man, if I do that, I'm going to somehow miss out. So let me go live my life first and I'm going to do all these things and and then maybe I'll, I'll surrender to Jesus. It's the oldest lie in the book. It's what Satan said in the garden to Eve. Did God really say? He said, God knows that if you, if you take this, that you're going to be able to see it. Things would be better. God's holding out on you. Can I just say today, God is not holding out on you. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your master. And here's the thing. Christianity is not so much about striving as it is about surrender. If you would surrender to him, you would say today, Lord, I want you to be my, my servant and my master. I can tell you this, then grace and peace can flow into your life. 
So many people, again, don't receive that grace and that peace because they're too busy enslaved to their own sins and their own passions. And because of that, they never know the grace and the peace of God in their lives. I want to plead with you today. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Let your identity be found in what God has called you to, that you would be a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Would you stand with me as we close today? As we close with a song of worship, it's really a prayer, but this is a good time. This is a good moment to commit or recommit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here and you would you would name the name of Jesus and you'd call yourself a Christian if somebody asked. But if you're honest today, you're not submitted to his lordship. You're doing your own thing and then every once in a while you come back to him and say, God, here's what I need. <laughs> but you're not submitted to his lordship. I want to tell you today, the greatest thing you can do is surrender. Surrender your life to him. Allow him to lead you. Allow him to guide you. Allow him to fill your life with peace. So with heads bowed, on the room today. I want you to just take a moment before we sing, before we move on, just between you and God. We right now, just once again, to surrender to him. He knows. <laughs> he knows it all. You can fool others, but you're not fooling him. So just take a moment between you and the Lord. Just surrender anew to him today. Recognize him as your Lord and, and your master. Just let your prayer be, Lord, lead me, guide me. <laughs> Allow me, Lord God, to proclaim your gospel this week. God, would you use me? I guarantee if that's your prayer, that he'll answer it. Let's take a moment before we close with a song.